timeline for every end time event. As we look forward to prophetic events, it's like watching a show on a nine inch black and white TV. There's enough information to follow the story, but there are many details we can't quite make out. That was by a guy named Todd Hampson. I'm gonna talk first of all about four main views about prophecy. The first is called the idealist view. It's also known as the spiritualist view or spiritual view, where prophecy is entirely symbolic or allegorical. This school of thought started around 150 AD in Alexandria, Egypt, uh, among the believers there and the scholars there. Later on, St. Augustine applied this same view, but he only applied it to the prophetic scriptures. He said it's only the prophecies that are truly allegorical. It's all allegorical. But because of his fame and his major writings, this became the dominant view of the Roman Catholic Church. But Martin Luther and John Calvin continued in these beliefs. There are some problems with this idealist view. Uh, it may make the Bible something unintended by the writer or the author. In other words, it's just myth. It's, uh, it's not history. It's not prophecy. It's just stories made up to lift us to higher emotions or feeling good about ourselves. Also, the interpreter becomes the standard. Boy, this really becomes a problem because everybody here has a different view of the allegories and what they mean, you know, who's right? Can anybody be right? Allegorizing prophecy can lead us back to Alexandria, Egypt. There's no final biblical authority. There's no meaning to the scriptures. It's just stories. The second view uh, I'm going to bring to your attention is called the preterist view. Some people say preterist. It's I pronounce it preterist. These prophecies have all been fulfilled historically already. So, Revelation is just a report of first century events. And there's really two ways to look at the preterist view. The first is full preterism. Revelation was about the 70 AD destruction of Jerusalem. That's it. You get to that far in history. And the whole book of Revelation has been completed uh, because it's all about that destruction of Jerusalem and the dispersion of Israel. But there is a partial preterism view that says only a portion of Revelation was fulfilled in 70 AD. And there is still prophecy out there yet to be fulfilled. But a whole lot of it deals with the destruction of Jerusalem and Israel in the first century. Well, by the mid-1500s or so, the Protestant uh, Reformation was well underway. Uh, a, a lot of different views from the Roman Catholic views of the Bible, of the church, uh, of faith. And Protestant scholars at that point were arguing that the Roman Catholic Church was the bad portions of Revelation. They were fulfilling those negative aspects of the book of Revelation. They were an apostate entity that was all about persecuting Protestants. True believers, 
Well, the preterist view is still around. It's still the majority view of the Roman Catholic Church. But it's also been incorporated into some Protestant denominations. We can't say that uh, it's us versus them. Here's some problems with that uh, preterist view. First of all, Revelation was written by John roughly 15 to 25 years after Jerusalem was destroyed as a book of prophecy. That's called cheating. Mm. Waiting till after the event and then calling it prophecy. Some people do that with the book of Daniel. Some scholars will do that with Daniel. That's cheating. Um, Another problem is that some events in Revelation have no historical uh, equivalent. In other words, there's no clear historical evidence that they have been fulfilled. So you, you can't read a part of the scripture of prophecy and go back and say, we can't find this in history. We, we, we don't see it and yet accept it as historical only. Um, for instance... Jesus has not physically returned. Now, we know that there are some so-called believers who think that he's in New York, in, in Brooklyn, and he's already been here, but uh, nobody's seen him except for supposedly those few people at the top there. Another thing not fulfilled is Satan has not been defeated. Does anybody here believe Satan is defeated? Raise your hand, please. No, none of us do. He's still around hassling us. And then the great white throne judgment hasn't happened. I'm sure we're all kind of happy that that hasn't happened yet, that that's still a, a future event. But to be fair, some prophetic details from the Bible have to remain allegorical. Okay, So Revelation does present us with some allegories, but it's usually very obvious. In other words, uh, we don't see Jesus as a literal sheep, as a lamb. Okay, we don't, we're not seeing that. We don't see the Antichrist as a beast, like a Halloween uh, monster or something like that. And we certainly don't see Satan as a dragon with a tail and fire breathing and the big teeth and, you know, um, smog <laughs> from the uh, Lord of the Rings. Well, that's, that's the um, preterist view. Let's look at a third view. It's called the historicist view. It's the, probably the least popular among all the views. And it is that prophecy is simply an overview of history. So it just simply is a story about our history presented in um, mythological and allegorical terms. Okay. So there's a lot of versions of this view. And there's a lot of allegories in this view that have to be changed over time. Because as time progresses, conditions change. People change. Uh, events change. Uh, an example might be that maybe in the early church, they saw the Antichrist as being the emperor of Rome. And more recently, the Protestants might claim that the, the uh, uh, Antichrist is the pope of the church. But you got to keep changing it over time if you're taking the historicist view. So as such, <laughs> there's a necessary constant need to change the interpretation of the Bible as time goes on.
And then fourthly, I'm going to talk about the futurist view, also known as the literal view. And this just simply means that prophecy will unfold as the Bible says it will. Now, this view does include uh, symbolic language and figures of speech, like I just said. Uh, so we have to look at those and say, what makes sense to us literally? And where can we say, well, this obviously is symbolic. And by the way, a lot of that symbology comes from the Old Testament. We'll talk about that again in just a second. However, most end times prophecy is pretty straightforward and literal. It's the view that makes the most sense. It's the view that honors God as a clear communicator. It's a view where, that uses the same interpretation throughout. It's the view that takes God's word at face value. You know, as unique individuals, we all have the right to have our own way of thinking. We have that freedom. But as believers, let's pray for God's wisdom so that we can understand this book. Amen. Okay, let's get to the rapture. As I have mentioned before, a couple weeks ago, the word rapture is not found in the scripture, but caught up. Uh, is used in some versions. Um, I said uh, Hal Lindsey likes to call it the great snatch uh, as Christians are taken away from the earth to be with Jesus in heaven. Well, let's look at a couple of uh, very main scriptures that talk about the rapture. The first is 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 to 17. We're probably all pretty used to these scriptures, but let's take a look at them again. Paul says, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord." I want you to note specifically, Paul thought he was going to be in the group of people who were raptured. He thought it was that near end time. Well, Paul, <laughs> a couple of millennia have gone by since you wrote that. We're still waiting, but we really expect him very soon, like you did. Are the, are the rapture and resurrection the same thing? I think a lot of people ask themselves that question. Aren't we just talking about the resurrection. Well, resurrection is the reuniting of the body, uh, dead body, with the soul, so after death, at the entry into eternity. So there are believers who are whose bodies are asleep waiting. Their souls, their spirits are in heaven with the Lord, but the physical body and the soul spirit will be united into a new spiritual body, a new physically present body that has very unique uh, characteristics. Remember, Jesus could walk through walls, yet he could eat food. He could um, uh, appear here and then disappear and appear somewhere else. Very unique characteristics of that body, but it was a physical body. Okay, so that's resurrection. The Greek word is anastasis. 
It means make to stand. Now, a soul isn't going to stand anywhere. It's just present. There's no uh, body to carry that soul to exp express or, or uh, interact with the environment, the external environment. But when the body is raised and reunited with the soul, then that person would be able to stand on the earth again in a physical body, uh, wonderful as it will be. Um, bodily resurrection is taught in the Old and the New Testament. Isaiah 26, 19 says, and, and this is the author, this is uh, uh, Isaiah speaking to Israel, or the Lord speaking to Israel. Your dead shall live. Together with my dead body, they shall arise. Very clear statement that physical bodies will resurrect. In Daniel 12, 2, it says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. People will resurrect. The New Testament, Paul, in the New Testament, Paul says this, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 14, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Resurrection. The first resurrection happens to believers who have died at the time Jesus comes near the earth in the clouds for his church. In 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 52, Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet sound, and the dead, in, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. So the resurrection of the dead... So the first status is you have to be dead before you can be resurrected, okay? But there's another event where those of us who are alive, Paul included himself in that group, um, are also going to be with the Lord. There's a promise that the Lord made to return for us. It's probably a, a very rich but overlooked uh, reference to the rapture of the church and the future state of the church. In John 14, 2 through 3, Jesus said, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there, you may be also. Now, I did find it interesting that in the Father's house, there's a whole lot of mansions. We can't imagine putting a house inside of a house generally. But in the Father's house, and they use the term house, are going to be many mansions. I tend to believe along the lines of uh, Chuck Smith that these really are not physical locations as much as they are uh, a future residence for our spirit, our, our glorified bodies. I may be wrong. Let's uh, take a look at that 1 Thessalonians 4 passage and pull it apart a little bit. First, Jesus comes with a shout. I want you to think uh, about Jesus 
calling out the entombed Lazarus from, from his tomb uh, by saying, Come forth! Come out of there. That may be that call that Jesus uses uh, in his shout. Second of all, Jesus comes with the voice of an archangel. Now, we don't know. It's not stated here, but it could be Michael. Um, very likely Michael. Uh, he seems to be the lead angel right now and uh, probably held the same rank as Lucifer, only Lucifer went a different path. What's he going to say? What's the archangel going to uh, say? What's the, his, his voice going to actually say to us? Will he say, come up here? Like in Revelation 4.1, that's one suggestion. Maybe it's his voice that actually says, come up here. Uh, and that may be a reference to the rapture. Uh, even though John is recording that he's being called up into heaven, it may be a, a, a reference we can look at that relates to the rapture. Will what the archangel says be a war cry? Well, we're not, we're not really ready for battle yet. Uh, the, the physical return of Jesus to Armageddon, eh, still future at that point, right? Will it be an announcement that the groom is coming? We're going to talk about that a little bit more. The third point in 1 Thessalonians 4 is that Jesus comes with the trumpet of God. The Hebrew word is shofar. This trumpet was used to call the Israelites into assembly or to battle. This is not the trumpet of Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, which is the final trumpet judgment, during the final tr uh, trumpet judgment. J judgment hasn't started at the point of the rapture. The fourth point in this passage, the dead, and, and we relate that to the asleep that Paul talks about in other passages, the dead in Christ will rise first. So there's going to be a resurrection, and this is the first resurrection that the Bible talks about. Now, Jesus is resurrected before then. He's the first fruits of resurrection. But the first general resurrection of mankind uh, happens here, uh, and Paul relates it in this passage. So the dead in, uh, dead in Christ will rise first. And lastly in this passage, living believers are changed. And we sometimes see the word translated. So moving from one form to another form, moving from physical corruptible bodies into glorified incorruptible bodies, yet still physical. In 1 Corinthians 15.52, Paul says, we shall be changed. Amen. <laughs> what could be more exciting? We look forward to that moment with truly unlimited joy. We're going to be reuniting with family and friends. But most of all, we're going to see Jesus face to face. Yeah. Well, when's that going to happen? Not soon enough, right? <laughs> the timing of the rapture in modern evangelical thought has been it's imminent. The rapture of the church is imminent. There's nothing that has to happen in prophecy before the rapture happens in 
most evangelical scholars' minds. An analogy might be this. When we see the Christmas displays, we know Halloween is almost here. (laughs) And next year is going to be, and we know the 4th of July is getting really close. (laughs) So the timing of the rapture. Okay, we're going to talk about the timing of the rapture in relation to the tribulation, which is the big question uh, that divides a lot of Christian believers today. First of all, Let's recognize that there are serious believers who think the rapture won't even actually happen. It's, it's uh, an allegory of uh, a uniting with Jesus. Uh, or it comes at the end of time, at the end of the millennium, then the rapture. So they're actually taking a look at that as being that second resurrection from the dead. They're saying, okay, that's when this happens. There are three predominant views. There's the pre-tribulation view. Jesus is going to come for the church before the tribulation period. There's the mid-tribulation view. Jesus is coming in the middle of the tribulation. And that's a seven-year period, as we've talked about before. Three and a half years into the tribulation, Jesus returns and takes the church with him. And there's the post-tribulation view, which is after the tribulation is over, then Jesus comes and uh, grabs us, okay? Let's start by looking first at the mid-tribulation view. As I said, this happens halfway through the tribulation. This is when the Antichrist breaks his covenant with Israel. He defiles the temple. He goes in and he sits down on a throne and says, Worship me as God. I am God. Okay? And I want you to worship me as God. Um, This is when the Jews begin their most intense persecution. Now, I'm sure if you know any Jewish people, they'll say they're being persecuted now. And there's no doubt in my mind. I have many Jewish friends and yeah, they get persecuted. This is also when the mark of the beast is initiated. So why do some scholars believe that Jesus is coming back for his church in the middle of the tribulation? Well, Basically, what they're saying is that the tribulation is divided into two halves, the first being man's wrath against man. And then the second half is when God's wrath comes to play. So let's talk about wrath for a minute. I I think it's important. Let's take a look at this first three and a half year period. What's going to happen? World war, global famine, worldwide pandemic, severe Earthquakes, massive meteor showers, one-third of the grass is burned up, one-third of the sea is turned into blood. Is it Mediterranean? Is it all the oceans? Uh, We'll find out. One-third of all sea life dies. A very large meteor makes one-third of the fresh water of the earth undrinkable. Another very large meteor makes a crack in the Earth's crust and a horde of demon locusts come out and punish men. And another event, uh, God's two witnesses in Jerusalem breathe fire on their enemies. Now, I don't know about you, but this sounds like God's wrath to me. The resurrection is 
tied to those two witnesses because the Bible describes them as literally being raptured after they were murdered, lay in the street for three days, then they came back to life and they literally were raptured. They were taken away as Jesus was taken away. There's one slight problem with that. This is where the seven trumpet judgments comes, come in. And these adherents say, these scholars say, well, see, the trumpet that Jesus returns, it's, it's here in Revelation chapter 11. The one problem is the witnesses are raptured and then the trumpets, trumpet judgments happen in the chronology of, Roman, of, of Revelation. So it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Besides the shofar trumpet sounded to mark the beginning and end of events for, the, for Israel. So I believe that the trumpet in 1 Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians marks the end of the church age and Jesus coming for us. Okay, let's look at the next <clears throat> view. Let's talk about the post-tribulation rapture. This is a very interesting one. It would make the rapture and the ret physical return of Jesus to the earth nearly simultaneous. Some adherents would say it immediately precedes Jesus returning. So, first of all, if that's true, when is the marriage supper of the Lamb? Well, you look into the book of Revelation, the marriage supper of the Lamb happens before he returns to earth. So, who is he marrying at the marriage supper of the Lamb? If the believers are still on earth, if the bodies of the dead believers are still uh, asleep in the earth, in the dust of the earth, then there doesn't seem to be uh, a marriage supper of the Lamb that makes any sense. Saints are also mentioned uh, in the tribulation period, but the word church in the book of Revelation is not used after chapter 3. So in, in uh, Revelation chapters 1 through 3, the word church is used 19 times. It's not used again in the book of Revelation until chapter 19. Okay, So there seems to be an absence of the church during the tribulation period in Scripture. Saints are mentioned in reference to the tribulation period, but these are tribulation saints. Um, we have to think about church the way we looked at it in, in, when we were defining the first week, how we were defining church as not synonymous necessarily with the word saints. Uh, saints is the word used during the tribulation period in the book of Revelation, but there were tribulation saints. You have to think about there were 144,000 Jewish evangelists and what did they do? They went around converting millions of people who then became saints. And unfortunately, that choice is what decided between life and death for them. But maybe they were forced to make that choice. Hey, you, are you going to choose Jesus or are you going to choose our friend, the Antichrist? And here's our guillotine or our 
swordsman if uh, you choose the wrong uh, door. Okay. This view, the post-tribulation rapture view, as well as the mid-tribulation chapter view, uh, 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 rapture view, make the timing of the rapture known. We believe it's imminent. It could happen any time, and we don't know when it's going to happen. Jesus referred a couple of different times, so you just don't know when it's going to happen. But if it happens mid-tribulation or post-tribulation, we know exactly when it's going to happen. We can count the calendar days and know when it's going to happen. We'll know the day. Maybe not the hour, but we'll know the day. Okay? Christians, I don't think, would find much comfort uh, as Paul admonished us in 1 Thessalonians 4.18 in the knowledge that they're soon going to live through the tribulation period if either the mid-tribulation or the post-tribulation views are correct. So we don't lean on, we put our faith in the pre-tribulation rapture. Jesus returns near the earth in the clouds. He takes his church home to be with him during the tribulation period. So we ask ourselves, is there a crystal clear order of events in the Bible to prove the pre-tribulation rapture? And I suggest to you the answer is probably no, okay, for most scholars. But there are some good reasons to believe that the pre-tribulation is the correct view. And I'm going to bring up five reasons, and we'll discuss these a little bit in depth here. We're going to, as they do on Law & Order, we're going to use logic and forensics to determine the facts, okay? So we're going to look at facts. The Old Testament prophetic books are the foundations for the book of Revelation. A lot of the imagery, a lot of the language that we see in the book of Revelation, we can go back and we can find those same events, that same language in the prophetic books of the Old Testament. So if we study, we can find that the puzzle pieces fit well for a pre-tribulation view. We will see them, these facts as broad brushstrokes rather than the fine detail work. Okay. Reason number one, and I think one of the most important reasons, at least I'm thrilled about it, the Bible tells us we are not appointed to wrath. So what in the world does that mean, wrath? Well, let's look at Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, which says... The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. And let's jump to verse 15. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm. So, the Israelites understood that there would be a day of God's wrath, a day of judgment coming eventually. They might not have seen it very clearly, but they understood that God's judgment would come. The term, the day of the Lord, is used throughout the Old Testament prophecies. Uh, for instance, Isaiah 2, verse 12, and chapter 13, verses 6 through 9. 
In Ezekiel 13, 5 and 30, verse 3, Joel chapter 1, verse 15, chapter 2, verse 1 and 11 and 31, chapter 3, verse 14, the book of Amos, chapter 5, verses 18 and 20, Obadiah, verse 15, Zephaniah, chapter 1, verse 7 and 14, Zechariah, chapter 14, verse 1, and Malachi, chapter 4, verse 5. The day of the Lord was expected in the Old Testament by the uh, Israelites. Now, in Paul's day, he had some of his young converts tell him that they thought that they would be living through the tribulation. They, they misunderstood or they'd been misled uh, by false teachers into believing that, hey, they're going to live through the tribulation. I remember Paul expected to be raptured fairly soon. And so I'm sure these young believers were saying, gee, the rapture's coming on in the next few years. But the way we understand these new teachers is that we don't get rapture. We're going to live right into that tribulation. The rapture is going to happen later or doesn't happen at all. So Paul responded. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 9 to 11, Paul says, For God did not appoint us to wrath. Woohoo! <laughs> I love that statement. But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. In Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, he says, But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. What a promise. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul encouraged his followers to wait for his son from heaven, <clears throat> whom he raised from the dead, and even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And we all know the passage in Revelation 3.10 that says, I will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. Now, notice he didn't say through, I will keep you through the wrath. I will keep you from the wrath. Quite a promise. And notice what this wrath is representative of. It's global judgment. It's the whole world. It's the trial coming on the whole world. It is certainly talking about the tribulation period. Reason number two to really catch on to pre-tribulation rapture as the correct view, are patterns and types. This is a very interesting study to do. There are examples in the Bible of believers escaping prior to God's judgment. First, Noah's flood. Noah say, uh, God saved Noah and his family, small group of people, uh, at the time of his worldwide flood judgment, and he pulled them out beforehand. And then they were able to stay away from the flood, above the flood, and then return to the earth. Interesting image. 
Lot and his family at Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis uh, 18 to 19. We have to remember, Lot didn't want to come. That's not talking about our desire not to go. But he was forcefully removed. And it's like being jerked away from, being pulled away from, being caught up. Uh, we're not going to be jumping as high as we can jump and say, catch me, Lord. <laughs> He's going to take us and pull us and change us. And we're going to be with him in heaven. Which, of course, we think about heaven as being vertically away from us. Heaven is here, too. I mean, it's, it's a frequency change. It's like changing channels on your TV. I'm here, one click, and I'm somewhere else completely. But I'm basically in the same location. It's just that now it's a different dimension. Okay, That may be a good representation of what heaven and the translation into heaven may really be like for us. Okay, um, Nineveh in the book of Jonah. What was Jonah's message? Repent or perish. That's the, that's the message of the gospel. You don't have to perish. You can repent and be saved. And of course, we know Nineveh was saved because they repented, which didn't please Jonah too much. <laughs> In Daniel, what happened when his brothers were put in the furnace? Daniel wasn't anywhere to be found. He wasn't there. He escaped the furnace. Now, they made it through the furnace. They made it through the furnace experience. And some, some, in some ways, that they're, the uh, people who believe that uh, believers will go through the tribulation or parts of the tribulation, they pull that from the image of Daniel. But the part that we really are, it's so remarkable to me, is that Daniel wasn't there. He was taken away from. Uh, another uh, type is Rehab and her family, Rahab and her family. Uh, they were saved during the Battle of Jericho by putting a red ribbon in their window, and they were saved from judgment, from punishment. Okay, so there's a pattern through all these stories in the Old Testament. And the pattern is this. There's a warning. There is the removal of the righteous. And then there is judgment that falls on who gets left behind. The third reason I want to say that the pre-tribulation rapture is the correct view, interestingly, is Jewish wedding traditions. You say, wait a minute, how are we talking about Jewish wedding traditions here this morning when we're studying the Bible? Well, some of those traditions are presented in some of Jesus' parables. And uh, interesting, um, if you've ever been to a Jewish wedding, when I was a student at Biola, I had very dear friends who were members of Jews for Jesus. Um, Ruth Rosen was the founder's daughter. I went to school with her. And one of my um, uh, Jewish um, sisters uh, was married uh, right at the end of our time at Biola. And I got to go to that wedding and see some of these traditions. It was very interesting. So what happens at a, uh, during a Jewish, Jewish uh, wedding? Well, there's two periods. Okay, The first is the betrothal, dedication, engagement, whatever you want to call it, period. It's legally binding. It causes a divorce. It takes a divorce to get out of. But this is not when the uh, uh, 
uh, groom and bride uh, live together, uh, consummate the marriage, that kind of stuff. This is an engagement period, okay? And then there's the second period, which is the wedding and the consummation. And those are very representative pictures of the pre-tribulation rapture. So first, the groom leaves the father's house. He goes to his potential bride's house, the one he longs for. And uh, then he pays a great price, uh, which is either accepted or it's rejected. So here's the good news. I want to marry you and you can marry me or not. Then if the bride and bride's father uh, accept the offer, a contract is struck and is confirmed with a single glass of wine. Everybody drinks from one cup of wine. Then the groom returns to the father's house to prepare while the bride stays at home. The bride knows the general time that the groom is going to return, but does not know the day or the hour. It's a surprise. So on the day that the uh, groom chooses, the groomsmen blow the trumpet as the groom suddenly arrives at the house. Are you hearing the picture here? Are you seeing this tremendous image? The groom takes the bride to the wedding chamber and is sealed in for seven days. And then comes out and they have the wedding feast. What a picture of Jesus and his bride, the church. Wow. Okay, reason number four. The focus of the tribulation is not the church. Sorry, guys. Focus of the tribulation, thank God, is Israel. It's not us. And we are uh, certainly hoping that our uh, Jewish friends and neighbors turn to their Messiah before these events happen. But in Revelation chapter, uh, I think I mentioned this already, in Revelation chapter 1 to 3, the church is mentioned 19 times. Um, and then uh, John sees an open door in chapter 4, and this might be uh, the rapture. The church is next seen in Revelation 19, but Israel stays behind, non-believing Israel stays behind and experiences the tribulation. Remember, the tribulation actually served two main big purposes. Number one, to bring Israel back to her senses, to bring her back to the Messiah. And number two, to punish unbelievers. Those are the two big main reasons for the uh, tribulation. And of course, the tribulation period in the Old Testament uh, is also known as Jacob's trouble. So we know Israel is really the focus of the tribulation period. God is wanting to deal with uh, Israel and bring them back to himself and save a remnant. Reason five, 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 8, which is a follow-up, by the way, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. These young converts of Paul, these young believers, again, were seeking more clarity about the end times because they were victims of a hoax. Because the false uh, witnesses, the false uh, prophets and teachers were saying, hey, bro, tribulation has already begun. We're there. We're in it. <laughs> and 
And that frightened them because Paul had said, no, 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 it's not going to happen. So Paul had to clarify for them once again that uh, they were going to be gathered together to him. They thought they'd missed it, but uh, Paul had to confirm it from them. So in 2 Thessalonians uh, 2, um, chapter 2, verse 3, the day of the Lord is preceded, and, and Paul reminds them of this, number one, by the falling away, and number two, by the man of lawlessness. So let's talk about first the, fall, uh, the falling away. Some of the versions that I was reading yesterday uh, actually use the term falling away. And there were other, some other terms that were also used, the rebellion, uh, one version uses the apostasy. And so we're kind of led down this road to view the event here as an, a, a greater apostasy of end time people away from the Lord, away from the church, away from churchianity, if you would. Um, and it, it's a spiritual departure. Okay, but another way to look at this, and I'm now uh, really thinking this is the more accurate view, the context of this whole passage is um, the, what precedes the day of the Lord. And the word, uh, the noun for uh, the falling away or uh, the apostasy is apostasia. And the verb form is aphistomai which really means um, departure. So it does make sense to me now that what Paul is talking about here is the physical departure. What he's saying to them is, you're still here. It hasn't happened. We're not physically departed. That has to happen before the tribulation period. It makes sense to me now. The man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, is not revealed yet. If they were in the middle of the tribulation period, even the beginning of the tribulation period, according to Paul's timeline for them to understand, the man of lawlessness would have been revealed. Now, we know that person is the Antichrist, right? Uh, another uh, version uses the word apostate, the uh, capital A, the apostate, the one who leads apostasy in the world at, at that point. Um, but in verse 6, he says, something restrains the Antichrist. In verse 7, he says, someone restrains the Antichrist. Our understanding has always been that the Holy Spirit is who restrains, the someone who restrains the Antichrist from being revealed. And where is the Holy Spirit present today on earth? In the church, in us. Amen. So if we're raptured away, then the restraining force against the man of lawlessness is gone. And in popular term, all hell will break loose. Okay, evil is going to really take over in a major way. It's just going to break right out. So we can all look at Paul's uh, statement in Titus chapter 2, verse 13, he calls the return of Christ the blessed hope. Yes, hope. There is hope for us. And that hope is the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. 
Now I do want to present another kind of a, it's a modification of the pre-tribulation view. It's called the partial rapture theory. Very interesting presentation on that theory in a book by John Walvoord. He used to be the uh, head of Dallas Theological Seminary and he wrote a book uh, called The Rapture Question. Fascinating book. And he talks about the partial rapture theory. It's, like I said, it's basically a modified pre-tribulation rapture uh, process. In this view, only those who are faithful believers at the time of Jesus' return to the church will be raptured because they're the ones who are prepared to go. Now, the basis for being raptured is it's either got to be grace, all believers go, or it's reward. And what they're saying is the, the reason people get raptured is they're being rewarded for their faithfulness. And the interesting thing is, one of the developments of this theory is that the church goes in groups. So on the day of the initial rapture, when the first group goes, that's when the tribulation period begins. And then throughout the tribulation period, as Christians come back to their senses and come back to the Lord and really increase in their faith, and they're ready to go, just boom, okay, there's another rapture. And then later on, boom, there's another rapture. And in the middle of the tribulation, boom, there's another rapture. Partial rapture. Interesting theory. It was actually inaugurated by a guy named Robert Govitt uh, back in 1853. He said that the kingdom is conditional. And it's based on worthy conduct. It almost sounds like he's saying salvation is conditional based on worthy conduct. We see... <clears throat> the true church, and the professing church. He sees these as all believers, but some are worthy and some aren't. In Matthew 24, verses 40 to 51, Jesus exhorts us to watch. He gives a couple of illustrations. The first is two men are in the field, one is taken and the other left. Okay, There are two women grinding at the mill. One is taken and one is left. Our view is probably we're seeing the picture of the rapture. In uh, Mr. Govitt's eyes, this would be both believers, but the worthy, the faithful, and the unworthy, the unfaithful, who can come along later. That's not actually seen in this passage of scriptures. It's not seen anywhere really in the Bible. So are both individuals in Jesus' exhortation true believers, or is he talking about Jesus, talking about believers versus unbelievers? It's a good question. But Jesus does exhort us to do this. In verse 42, Jesus says, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. In the New American Standard Bible, Instead of saying watch, it says be on the alert. And in verse 44, therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So the conclusion for the one being left behind uh, is in 50, verse 51. This is an interesting conclusion for the one being left behind is cut in two and appointed his 
portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That doesn't sound like believers who are going to make it to heaven to me. It sounds like punishment. So the implication is that some will not watch and therefore not be ready to go. They won't be worthy. Luke 21, 34 to 36 says, But take heed to yourself, lest your hearts be weighted down with carousing and drunkenness and care of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the earth, whole earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. I have to ask the question, who stands before the Son of Man in the Scriptures? They're seeing this as worthy people standing before the Son of Man versus unworthy believers who have to wait, who's delayed, who don't <clears throat> make it. It's a, it's a rather interesting view. It just doesn't stand up to um, a, a good study, <clears throat> a good look at this. So <clears throat> what we've talked about today has given us a whole lot of food for thought and for some careful study. I'm going to share my notes with everybody. Uh, for the whole series. How about us? What is Jesus asking us to do? Watch, you know, take heed. He's asking us to be ready. And we're ready when we view life from an eternal perspective rather than a temporal perspective. Then we'll be ready. Does that mean Christians will be left behind? No. I think the Bible's pretty plain on that. Believers are going to be taken with Jesus when he comes back for us in the rapture. Kind of mysterious, isn't it? Shouldn't we expect to find mystery in this Bible? Of course we should. Daniel 2, verse 22. Speaking about God, Daniel says, He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells in him. You know, we're in a spiritual war, and it's been raging for ages. Satan is our enemy, and he knows the Bible very well. Deception is his key tool. It's a continuing problem for us especially if we don't study and understand the Bible for ourselves. Mystery forces us to study carefully. And how do we stay on God's path? Well, I don't mind reading other points of view. I don't mind reading what people I disagree with say. I really don't. There are groups out there that won't let their membership uh, read outside materials. I don't mind reading them at all, but I want to know what the Bible says. That's what's going to lead us to truth. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this study in, the, in your scriptures on the rapture. We expect for and long for 
the soon return of Jesus Christ for us. We hear that he's at the very door. I remember so well back in the early 1970s being so excited about Jesus' return at that time. And yet you're a patient Lord and you long for unbelievers to come to you. And we do know that there is a day when there's that last non-believer out there who recognizes you, Lord, as his Lord and Savior, commits his life to you. And that's the end of the time of the Gentiles and the time for you to return. We're so excited, Lord. We long for our hearts to be on fire, to reach out to those who haven't heard this message or who have turned their back on it and poo-pooed it. Help us to accept them in love, to love on them, to share with them truthfully, honestly, and graciously, because you're a God of grace. You're a God of love, and you've shown it to us by showing us that you're bringing us to heaven for the great wedding feast, to consummate the bride's wedding to the groom. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus, for what you are doing in our midst. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for living in us and being an influence to draw us away from sin and towards righteousness. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us your righteousness. And it's yours, Lord. We praise you. You are worthy, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.